We thank you for your word. We thank you that it sustains us. We thank you that we feed off of it. We thank you that we can become one with it. We thank you for the truths that it reveals to us, the promises that it reveals to us, that it reveals to us you and who you are and what you want to be for us, all that you do for us. Lord, I pray that your words would go forth this morning, that lives would be changed, that your spirit would go forth and move. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all had different situations that we've been in where nothing really, we really had nothing to do with anything with it. It really had nothing to do with us. But we were sucked into this situation, right, that we weren't planning on being in the middle of. Anybody here have that happen to them? Whether it's family members or friends, it has nothing to do with you, but somehow you just discover you've been sucked in the middle of it. You open your eyes and you say, whoa, how did I end up here? Friends who are fighting, they want you to take a side, or there's been an unexpected accident maybe, or you feel like you have a pretty ordinary life, and God makes something extraordinary happen. We have a group of men in our passage today who are just minding their own business, doing their thing that they've done for years and decades just minding their own business, and who knew no one really wants to have anything to do with anyways. And God breaks through, and he breaks through time, and he breaks through cultural barriers, and he chooses to tell them, of all people, about the new birth of the Messiah. And so the first point that we have in our passage this morning is the setting. I want to set up the setting real quick here. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 2. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. We're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 8, officially. Uh, but what is this setting for what is to follow in this account of Jesus' birth? Before we get into these verses here, before we get into this passage this morning, if you, if you skim a little bit further up in chapter 2, in verse 1 of chapter 2, you read... Point blank, Luke says that the time period this happens is during the Roman emperor reign of Caesar Augustus. He was the Roman emperor at that time. He ruled over the area that Joseph and Mary are in right now. Now Caesar Augustus ruled officially from 27 BC to 14 AD. He has declared a census which forced Joseph to have to return to his family's homeland to account for family property back in the city of David, also known as Bethlehem. You've heard me mention in the past that, that critics of the Bible are quick to point out that Matthew says Jesus was born during the reign of King Herod, and Luke says that he was also born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. It's well known in history that Herod died in 4 BC, and critics will point out that the census we know of in history, while Quirinius was governor over Syria, that Luke says clearly in verse 2, happened in 6 AD, way too late to match up with Herod's reign. 
They also point out the seemingly absurdity that Caesar Augustus would care enough to force the Jewish people to return to, to locations where they had familial and tribal connections. Let's deal with the timing problem first. Luke is very clear that Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken of everyone in his empire. We read in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Obviously, inhabited earth here is a reference to however far the Roman Empire stretched at that time, which at the time of Augustus's rule was quite far. He was the emperor of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. However, what we need to realize is that this does not mean that Augustus decreed, all right, I'm giving out an order, and this needs to happen right now at the exact same time all across my entire empire. That is not what that means. Augustus was a pretty wise emperor. He, again, he's the one who ushered in the Pax Romana. He was a pretty wise emperor. And he would have known that any order like that would have created what? Complete chaos in his empire, if he did that all at the same time. Rather, as many biblical scholars have pointed out, it was the Roman practice to carry out censuses piecemeal, different places at different times. There is historical evidence of that in Roman-occupied Egypt around this time. So what Luke very well could have meant by chapter 2, verse 1, was that he was giving a general time marker as to, uh, to set up the reason why Joseph and very pregnant Mary would leave Nazareth in the first place to go all the way to Bethlehem. In other words, generally, around this time period, Caesar Augustus had given a decree that he intended to take a census of everyone in his empire for tax purposes. As historical scholarship will note, an empire-wide census was accomplished for the very first time under Caesar Augustus, but it happened during widely separated time periods and locations. It didn't happen all at the exact same time. This decree of Caesar Augustus was then carried out by Herod in his corner of the empire during the time Jesus would just so happen to be born. That's why, uh, that, that's what leads us to why Augustus would have required the Jewish people to register with places in which they had ancestral ties. This is why. Herod was a pawn king. He was set up over Judea by the Romans, and he was expected to obey them with everything that they told him to do. And there's historical evidence that Herod was not on good terms with Augustus, and their relationship was getting more and more strained at this point that Jesus was born. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus records that only a few years before Jesus' birth, Herod severely punished some robbers who were Augustus's direct subjects, and Augustus was forced to rebuke Herod sharply. In a letter that Augustus wrote to Herod, he asserted that while at one point he saw Herod as a friend, he now saw him as his subject. 
And that's very important to this discussion here. So it was at this point that Augustus very well could have ordered Herod as his unruly subject to take inventory of his corner of the empire. One biblical scholar points out that the Romans often adapted their policies to whichever would bring the least resistance. And since Judea was already a political hotbed, it's very reasonable that Herod would have used the strong and well-established ancestral ties to dictate where people should go to register. Not only that, but since these censuses were for tax purposes, Joseph probably owned land in Bethlehem, either inherited it or, or had it through some other means, there is historical evidence that in Roman tax policy, if one owned land in a metropolitan area, they would receive 50% of a tax reduction. That's a good amount of money, isn't it? Half off your taxes? That's pretty good incentive. And since Bethlehem was located in such close proximity to Jerusalem, Joseph's land would have counted for this tax reduction. If... When Joseph registered this land with the Romans, he also registered his firstborn son. At the same time, his firstborn son would also be able to claim this same tax reduction when he was old enough. And so, now, we have a very logical reason as to why Joseph and pregnant Mary would make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the first place. Why Joseph would drag Mary along with him to go to Bethlehem. Now what about the time discrepancy between the reigns of Augustus, his Judean pawn king subject Herod, who died in 4 BC, and the historically known census which took place in 6 to 7 AD during the governorship of Quirinius. Long story short, there's one very logical, simple, and biblical theory that explains this discrepancy. When we read Luke chapter 2, verse 2, we read this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Here's a question. Why in the world does Luke insist on including the word first here? He could have and should have only written this was the census taken while Quirinius was governor over Syria if he was only referring to what? One census, right? Luke, the same author who wrote this, also writes about another census in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. When the Pharisee Gamaliel is warning against the Pharisees killing the apostles and to just let their little movement based on Jesus of Nazareth die out on his own, he says this, after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, he too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. Just let it run its course. This has happened before. Luke here gives no further clarification on that census here. He just says the census, doesn't he? Or which one it was. He just says this census. Why is that? It's because everyone at the time that Luke wrote this, everyone knew 
about this famous one that took place in 6 to 7 AD. So we only refer to it as the census because it was famous. There's historical evidence of it. Everybody knew about it at the time. Now, as one biblical scholar points out, the form of the Greek language that Luke wrote in was just as relaxed as any modern language is today. And the word for first in Luke 2.2 could just as easily refer to former or prior and mean the same exact thing. In that case, Luke 2.2 could very easily, logically, and simply read, this census was before the census which Quirinius, governor of Syria, made. In that case, there's no time discrepancy. Nor is there any political or historical discrepancy with the census recorded for us in Luke 2.2, which places Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem for Jesus' birth in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy instead of Nazareth. Caesar Augustus was well known for his political philosophy of wanting to take inventory of everything that was taxable in the Roman Empire. Sounds like any other government today, isn't it? He wanted to know what he could tax. He wanted to know everything that he could tax. His political relationship with Herod was already well strained a few years before Jesus' birth, and so it's very reasonable that he ordered Herod to take up a census over his kingdom which included both Judea and Galilee at that time. This census was a lesser well-known one that took place prior to the famous one taken while Quirinius governed Syria in 6 to 7 AD. In other words, by Luke giving this historical marker, he's clearly saying that the Messiah, Jesus, was born before 6 to 7 AD. Since Herod died in 4 BC, Jesus' birth would have had to have taken place around 4 to 5 BC. Our calendar's wrong. Sorry to burst your bubble. And there's no timing discrepancy. We also know there's no political or historical discrepancy because of what we know about Roman policy and Jewish culture at that point. Herod, not wanting to cause any more strife in his kingdom, therefore jeopardizing his position even more, ordered that the census be taken in connection with Jewish ancestral ties. Because Joseph also very well could have owned or was going to inherit land in Bethlehem and the region of Jerusalem, he took Mary, pregnant with his legal firstborn son, with him to register that land with the Romans. While they were in Bethlehem for that census, prior to Quirinius's famous one, Mary gives birth to Jesus, and since there was no room anywhere in Bethlehem, she's forced to give birth to him in some kind of stable and lay him in a manger. That's the setting for our passage this morning, the setting. Now we get to the sign. All of that setting that we went through is what brings us to verse 8 here. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. We start out with the directional word, nearby. So we are nearby Bethlehem, nearby Jerusalem, verse 8 describes, in some fields with shepherds who are naturally tending their sheep. That's what they did for years and years and years. Because of this directional term, nearby, 
And because Bethlehem was so relatively close to Jerusalem, some scholars have theorized that these shepherds were tending the sheep destined for slaughter in the temple during the time of Passover. How theologically fitting it would be then for God's messengers to visit these Passover lamb shepherds to announce to them that the true Passover lamb had just been born. Now, societally, shepherds were seen as the bottom of the barrel culturally. The bottom of the barrel. Especially the ones who had to take the overnight watch. Shepherds were seen by their surrounding society as dirty, stinky, immoral thieves. That's some resume, huh? So not only were they looked down upon, but they were despised by almost everyone in society, and especially, and sadly, the religious people of the time. They were not allowed to worship God in the same way everyone else was allowed to because of their life's calling. They were seen as perpetually spiritually unclean and they were not allowed to enter the temple courts. Knowing all of this is then huge for our pastors this morning and here's why. Even though they were not allowed to come to God, in the way that everyone else could, God took it upon himself to come to them. All of a sudden, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Again, we don't know what angel this is again, because this angel is not named. But we know that, yet again, in the events surrounding his son's earthly birth, God uses an angel to announce it. This first angel appears right in front of the shepherds, the text says. This wasn't far away, up in the sky. The angel appears just as every other angel has appeared to Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph. Right in front of their faces. Joseph, it was a dream, but Zechariah and Mary was right in front of their faces. No wonder then, the text says, that they were terrified. And the most terrified they could be at that. The word used here for terrified is actually a combination of, the, of three Greek words to mean they feared with great fear. There wasn't a stronger word in the Greek to say how scared they were. There wasn't a stronger word. They, they, there wasn't a stronger term to describe the amount of fear they were experiencing at this point. Think of the scariest moment in your life right now. Think of the scariest moment of your life. And the amount of adrenaline that surged through your body at that point. That is what these shepherds are feeling at this exact moment. With an angel poof, right in front of their faces. What is it that this angel has to say to the shepherds? Verse 10. But the angel said to them, again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Again, like to Zechariah and Mary, the angel uses the phrase, don't be afraid. I don't bring you news about destruction or calamity. I bring you good news Wonderful, joyous news for not only you, but for everybody. The word for good news here 
is the same word that's, that's used to, to, to say evangelize or gospelize. The angel here is the first one to bring the gospel message, the good news to humanity. And it's through the message of the birth of humanity's Savior. And that's what brings us to verse 11. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are three things that the angel connects with the birth of Jesus here. Number one, Savior or Soter in the Greek means deliverer or someone who saves. Earlier in Luke, Mary refers to God as her Savior. Here in 2.11, Luke says that the angel attributes this characteristic to Jesus. That not only is God the Savior, but Jesus is the Savior. The long-awaited deliverer and God has just been born. Verse uh, uh, number two. The angel also connects this deliverer with the everlasting king when he says that the baby is born in David's city. Uh, everlasting king in Second Samuel chapter 7. Number three. The angel announces that Jesus, having been born in Bethlehem, David's city, connects him with the prophecy in Micah 5 2. And he says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Another biblical scholar notes that this term to describe Jesus, Savior, Christ, and Lord, all in one breath, is the only time in the New Testament that this is used to describe Jesus. The only time in the entire New Testament. Savior describes his mission, at least this time around. Christ describes his royalty. And Lord describes his authority. This baby is the ultimate king who holds all the authority over the universe, but who will also save and will also deliver all kinds of people from sin and death. Next, the angel gives the shepherds the sign, knowing that this indeed has come from God. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's a pretty unique sign, isn't it? Because who in their right mind would place their newborn child in a germ-infested feeding trough unless they had no other choice? That's why it's the sign. In other words, the angel says, you want to go see him? Go look for him. He's the only newborn baby that was born in Bethlehem. And what's more, he's laying in a manger. He's laying in a feeding trough. When you see this sign, you will know that everything else I've said to you is true. And that's just part one of this angelic message. As brilliant as that is, the grand finale happens. As much as the shepherds never expected even one angelic visit in their lifetimes, it is completely shattered by the appearance of what comes next. Verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. Suddenly, a plethos comes coming from the word full and meaning multitude, 
crowd or assembly of stratia or angelic army from heaven appears suddenly out of nowhere. The fullness, in other words, the entirety of heaven's angelic armies shows up at this point. There are no words, right? Imagine that. There would be no words. We would, be, we would all be left completely speechless. I can imagine the entire sky from horizon to horizon completely overflowing with the brilliance of this army. Think about that. When you see uh, TV shows or movies about this, it's, there's some in the sky, but this was the fullness the entirety of heaven's army. It took up the entire night sky all around, all around the edge of the horizon, all the way to the very top, the entirety of the night sky. Talk about breathtaking. As humble as his birth was, the everlasting king actually had a royal and military pronouncement from the army of heaven very well-deserved royal and military pronouncement. This army gives homage to its commander by declaring glory to God in heaven and may his message of the good news of his son, the deliverer, the ruler, the Messiah, bring peace to those on whom God shows favor. To those whom he doesn't show favor, it's a very terrifying thing. The birth of Jesus truly did and does give peace to those who love God and brings turmoil to those who refuse to believe in Him. And someday this commander of heaven's armies will return to earth again to annihilate all the armies of the world gathered together to destroy God's people. I can guarantee you that you want to be behind Him at that point than in front of Him. We can't forget who Jesus really is. We can't just think this is, this is who He is and that's where it stops. He is the commander of heaven's armies. The commander-in-chief of heaven's armies. He is the supreme commander-in-chief of the mighty and supernatural armies of heaven. Not only that, He will have His justice someday. How do we escape that judgment? By putting our full faith and trust in that He took our place on the cross the first time around. By recognizing our sin and recognizing Him as our only hope of salvation from that sin and recognizing Him for all that He is. God, Deliverer, King, and authority over our lives. Nothing short of that will suffice. Not, anything short of that you know what that is? Is continued rebellion. Fully kneel before the king today. So we have the setting, we have the sign, and thirdly, we have the search. We read in verses 15 through 16 when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. After the armies of heaven left, the shepherds didn't look around at each other and say, 
Well, that was weird. And go back to watching their sheep. That is not what happened. They immediately ran to Bethlehem. And because Bethlehem was not a very big town, they, they easily and quickly found where the baby announced to them was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Mary and Joseph most likely wondering why there was all of a sudden a bunch of ragtag, smelly shepherds around them and their newborn child probably asked the shepherds what they were doing and we come to verses 17 through 18. When they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Joseph and Mary were no strangers, right? To angelic visits in connection with the birth of their child. There were no strangers to that. They don't say, ah, get out of here. They believe the, the shepherds, for Mary and Joseph had been visited by angels themselves, and there would be no other reason as to why shepherds would risk the cultural derision from people as they came back into town to look for a newborn baby that they claimed was the Messiah. No other reason for it. Think about it. The shepherds knew that no one liked them. They knew that everyone thought they were up to no good. They probably wondered how they were even going to get any kind of parental permission to see this baby. But they did not care. They showed up anyway. That's faith, isn't it? They didn't care. They showed up anyway. And in an extremely ironic turn of events, the first people to see the newborn Messiah, besides his family, are members of the lowest socioeconomic status in existence in Judea at that time. Those ones that everyone overlooked, the outcasts, the ones no one ever wanted to have anything to do with, and even outright despised and went out of their way to show their derision towards them. Those are the ones God chose. Amen. Amen. This is huge because the same societally categorized type of people would be those Jesus reached out to with His love the most. And it all begins right here. Next we come to verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. All of it. The birth of the Messiah, her firstborn son, God reaching out to who she knew was the lowest socioeconomic status so that they could be the first ones to see him. All of it, she treasured up in her heart. Because Luke thoroughly investigated the accounts he chose to include in his gospel, this whole account could very well have been from a visit to Mary where Luke recorded Mary's eyewitness account. We're told right here that she committed all these things to memory. After all, his purpose from chapter 1, the very first two verses in chapter 1, is to write a thoroughly investigative and carefully ordered account. So all this is probably from Mary's own mouth. After they had a good look at the promised Messiah, verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Remember who these guys were. Were they respected by anyone in Bethlehem? 
Certainly not. Could they have been tempted to keep everything to themselves and not want to open themselves up to any more derision, disrespect, or mockery? Obviously. They didn't keep it to themselves for risk of looking like lunatics. They were so overwhelmed by what God had done for them and what He had revealed to them that they could not help but tell everyone they met about it. They started telling people what had happened to them back in verse 17. And here they returned to the fields giving praise to God all along the way to whoever was there that He gave them the opportunity to be one of the firsts to see the newborn King. You know what? We too have experienced the King in our lives. We too have experienced His forgiveness, His favor, and His power. Just like the shepherds, there is not one of us here who is unqualified to share our faith with others. Sorry, you don't have an excuse. There's not one person here who is unqualified to share what God has done in their lives through Jesus Christ with somebody else. Your past is not too checkered. Your background is not too questionable. Your struggles are not too sinful. Your weaknesses are not too debilitating for you to share the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Just like the shepherds couldn't help it. They couldn't help but tell others about who Jesus was and, who, and, and what He was to them. We should be so overwhelmed by Him, His presence in our lives, and His goodness, salvation, peace, and joy, and hope that we also can't help but tell others about all of that. We continue. You know what? The Christmas story does not close with the Gospels. We too have a part in the Christmas story. It continues on with each and every one of us. We continue to, to, to play a part in the Christmas story. And you, what part is that? It's the part of the shepherds. No matter who we are, no matter what our past has been, no matter what trauma we've been through in our lives, no matter what shame we've been through in our lives, no matter what sin we've done in our lives, no matter what our background is, anything having to do with us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter any of that because Jesus has broken through. He has broken chains. He has freed us. He has given us His salvation. He has given us His hope. And He has given us His peace. And we should be shouting to the skies and from the rooftops about all of His goodness towards us. And we just can't help it. We should be going out and praising God for how He's personally reached out to each of us. That even though we too could not come to Him on our own, He reached out to us and made a way for us. So, let this Christmas season be one where you look. Look for Him. You're going to be with family. You're going to be with friends this week. Look. Look for opportunities to declare to others the peace and goodwill that the Savior has brought to you.
And I guarantee you that no matter what you have sitting under the tree for somebody else, that is the greatest gift they could ever be given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the hope that it gives to us. Here these guys were. They had no hope. Everybody looked down on them. Everybody despised them. But God was the only one who didn't. God was the only one who reached out to them. And Lord, you are the only one who reaches out to us. I pray that we would not take that for granted. I pray that we would never forget that. But this, this week especially, Tuesday and Wednesday, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I pray that we would rejoice. Rejoice in that peace and hope and salvation that you were born to give us. You were born knowing you would die. Knowing you would die for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that that is our hope. And Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to share that hope with others. And I pray all these things in the power and the mightiness and the, the royal name of Jesus. Amen.